G'day and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson and I will be your host today as we explore the progressive bounds of museum practice. A couple of weeks ago, I passed my Americaversary and celebrated four years living here in Baltimore and in the US. When I moved here, I don't think I could have imagined or predicted the direction that the following years would take, whether personally, professionally, or politically. But those three parts of life are so intertwined, and increasingly it seems that not only is the personal political, but the professional is too. As an academic, I'm often finding myself thinking about how to ensure that my teaching is not partisan whilst acknowledging the beliefs and values that so inform my approaches, whether to teaching, research or life. And this question of how to acknowledge the politics in everything we do, particularly at a time when capital P politics are so present in daily life, is one that museums are obviously facing as well. Several times in recent episodes, my guests or I have mentioned the idea that museums are not neutral, that they're always making choices about where to spend their time, their money, and their influence. It's an idea that's sitting at the center of a vibrant discussion online and at conferences and in institutions around the world, thanks in large part to my first two guests, Latanya Autry and Mike Morawski, who started the Museums Are Not Neutral campaign late last year. Today, we're going to dive into this topic with them and with Kaywin Feldman, the Niven and Duncan Macmillan Director and President of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, or MIA, to find out more about why challenging the notion of museum neutrality is so critical today. As a cultural organiser in the visual arts, Latanya S. Autry centres social justice and public memory in her work. In addition to creating The Art of Black Descent, an interactive program that promotes public dialogue about the African-American liberation struggle, she co-produced Museums Are Not Neutral and the Social Justice and Museums Resource List, a crowdsourced bibliography. Latanya has curated exhibitions and organized programs at Yale University Art Gallery, Art Space New Haven, Mississippi Museum of Art, Tougaloo College, and the Crane Art Center. Through her graduate studies at the University of Delaware, where she is completing her PhD in art history, Latanya has developed expertise in art of the United States, photography and museums. Her dissertation, The Crossroads of Commemoration, Lynching Landscapes in America, concentrates on the interplay of race, representation, memory and public space. Mike Mawarski is a museum educator, cultural activist, nature lover and the current director of education and public programs for the Portland Art Museum. Mike is founding editor of artmuseumteaching.com, a collaborative online forum that launched in 2011. Mike earned his MA and PhD in education from American University in Washington, D.C., focusing his research on educational theory and arts learning. He previously held positions as director of school services at the St. Louis Art Museum and head of education and public programs at the Mildred Lane Kemper Art Museum at Washington University in St. Louis. Latanya, Mike, welcome to Museo Punks. Thank you so much. Thanks, Suze. Great to be here. It is so great to have you both here and at 
such an interesting time, I think, in museums and in uh, museums are not neutral, uh, which you have described as being an initiative that exposes the fallacies of the neutrality claim and calls for an equity-based transformation of museums. Latanya, I might start with you. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about the initiative, where it comes from, and what its broad aims are? Um, yes. So this started last August, and um, I mean, in many ways, it started a lot uh, a long time before that. But uh, this particular campaign started from last August. It was Mike was online on Twitter, and I follow him. I follow a lot of. Um, people are leaders in museums on Twitter, and I noticed that he was writing. I don't even remember what the whole origin of the conversation was, but at some point he had tweeted the statement, museums are not neutral, and um, you know, basically speaking to frustration he had noticed in museums, and Mike can tell you more about that. Um, but it, it's something that really resonated when I saw it, and I, I wrote back something like, that should be on a t-shirt. And uh, he wrote me later and said, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's make a shirt that says that. And, um, you know, we thought we could, <clears throat> we would sell these and have the proceeds all go to charity. So it wasn't really about us making money off of the shirts. It was about, you know, raising awareness and using the money to support social, social justice organizations. And it made so much sense to me because, I mean, I've been hearing it for years working in institutions, hearing people say, oh, the museum can't be political. The museum has to be this neutral space. And all along, I've been just fighting that and finding it to be really um, a ridiculous statement when, of course, museums just aren't neutral. Like in the first place, they're just the construct itself is not neutral. And um, it's something that's really bothered me. And so I've pretty much felt felt that I'm just fed up to hear, you know, like I just I cannot take that anymore. Anybody pushing that kind of statement on me. And so I thought the idea of a shirt was, you know, excellent. Yeah, it's interesting. The um, it, as a campaign, though, it, it's so much it's become so much more than a T-shirt. You know, it might have started as right. a as a tweet and a shirt, but it's really continued into something so much bigger than that. But as you say, Latanya, this idea that museums aren't neutral, it, it's something I certainly encountered when I was first coming to the idea of the museum as an institution back in art school. And that was, you know, 15 years ago. There's, we, we've known for a long time, I think, certainly in academic circles, that institutions, that museums are not neutral. So why has this idea of museum neutrality continue to resonate in some parts of the sector? Why is a campaign like this necessary now? Mike, maybe do you want to kick us off with this response? Sure, yeah. And it's, I've just been so grateful to be able to work on all this um, with Latanya. And there's so many colleagues and people out there in the museum field that are pushing this, you know, this message and understanding, I think, the the so it's not even a, a fact that like some someone has said recently, you know, well maybe some museums are neutral and some aren't, and it's just no. There's not even two sides of the debate. Every single institution is based on you know legacies of colonialism and white supremacy and all kinds of structures that are in place, um, and they haven't been able to escape those structures. And so I think one of the powerful things about this campaign and seeing. You know, now more than a thousand people all over the world uh, purchasing these T-shirts, wearing them at conferences, at policy meetings, at government meetings, um, and really striking up. Uh, we just—I just saw a photograph from the Columbus Museum of Art. They were wearing them at their city's Pride Parade um, for their museum's participation in that. Um, and it's just 
pushing forward this message that not only are museums not neutral, but they are part of, you know, being change agents in society. They are, you know, forces of change. They can, they're part of this conversation. They're part of the social and political issues within our communities. And they are not some sort of distanced, separate, you know, box that in, that includes objects or tells stories of other people. Um, so I think it's been really important to not just see the, the museums are not neutral message, but to understand that with that comes implications of action, you know, that museums should be taking social action, getting involved in, in social justice causes that benefit local communities and benefit communities abroad. So that's been a big, that's one of the reasons I think early on that was probably <laughs> related to the Twitter exchange that we were having when, when we came up with this idea to sort of do t-shirts, because I think both Latanya, myself, and, and thousands, probably 10,000s of, of people out there have just had enough of museums always doing this neutrality defense. Well, that's too political or that's too, you know, we're not going to get engaged in that. That's just too partisan. Um, and we keep hearing it. <laughs> we keep getting that pushback and I'm just blown away by how many even well-respected people in the field, you know, will sort of understand the basic element of what not being neutral means. But then when it comes, you know, take it a step further and they're like, oh no, we can't do that. We've got to cover all perspectives, all sides to every issue equally um and i think there's a real conversation to be had here so i'm glad that people are are really having it well yeah let's talk a little bit more about this idea then of neutrality because as you say one of the things you're talking about is not just an acknowledgement that museums make choices and that those choices are necessarily political because it's about who gets space and who gets time and visibility and resources or what topics or what objects. But you're also taking this further and you're talking about this idea of a museum acting as an agent of positive change. So uh, advocacy and acknowledgement of a lack of neutrality necessarily entwined or are they two separate issues that we're um, bringing together in this campaign uh, in part just because this is where your interest is and your focus is? Um, well, I, I'd like to say something about that. Um, I think they are entwined um, because once you, you know, acknowledge the actual truth, you know, and you stop hiding behind some kind of lies, um, it, it does make people go, so, okay, what are you going to do about it? And I think a lot of people um, who, many who don't, you know, even go to museums regularly and partly because they just feel that the museum is this construct, it's this um, construct of colonialism that has not been acknowledging that history, right, and have not acknowledged their complicity in it. And a lot of people just choose to not go there. And, uh, um, and, and when I talk to them, um, I usually tell people because they say, well, you know, I think that the museums, especially art museums, people will say, I think they're elitist spaces. I think they're racist spaces. And I tell them, yeah, generally they're right. That, that is what these spaces are about. So if you start to acknowledge the actual truth, right, um, I think that does put some pressure on, so what is one going to do about it? And for me, I think a lot of that is not so much only just about outward kind of programs, but actually the, mu the museum kind of um, critiquing itself and looking at their own internal um, processes, right? Their own, their practices that they've been doing and start to actually address those practices. There's also, it's not just um, what gets put on display, but who is making those choices. And so in yeah. the U.S., when we look at you know, who is running the institutions, 
it is very much, um, you know, these spaces are very much run on the ideology of white supremacy. It's also who is making the decisions in the institutions as well. So um, I think, I think the, the definitely the two, the actions are entwined with acknowledging the actual truth. Mike, what about you? Is this, do you see this as being a, a necessary entwinement or are they continuities or, or different things? I think I would agree. I think they're completely, you know, inseparable. I think um, being, <laughs> I mean, I think I love the t-shirt. I'm glad, you know, it's, it's a, but it's, it's only the first step. And I think, you know, I want people to sort of be making other t-shirts that say museums are, and then put a verb in there because I think mm. it's about sort of what we do. Um, I don't think you can just be not neutral. <laughs> right. um, and so I think, um, so yeah, I think they're, they're totally connected. I mean, when, look, when it comes down to it, um, you know, those of us that work in museums, uh, because, you know, one of the things that I sort of stand by, and I think that's consistent across a lot of people working in sort of the, you know, social action side of museums, museums are, are human-based institutions. They're made of people. So there's no it. Um, so many people that work for museums are like, oh, you know, the museum just won't change or it changes too slow or there's nothing we can do. And I think that, um, you know, is a, is a the, museums can change as quickly as the people that work for them can change. So if we can get museum leadership to, you know, be thinking about these issues, we can actually make change overnight. Um, because when it comes down to it, we're either when the, in the work that we're doing, we're either upholding or we're disrupting the status quo. We're either advancing or we're dismantling oppression. There's really no middle ground there, um, and so I think we've got to start understanding our role in you know taking apart these systems and making. It's actually something Latanya um, when we were having a conversation recently that was you know it's like inclusion is kind of okay and that's that's a big thing these days but latanya was saying she's for transformation um and i love that because that's really what the work is about it's about systemic change um and probably making change that the big change we might not even see you know come out in our lifetime because it's really big future-oriented systemic change but we've got to start cracking away at this stuff yeah, it's interesting as you talk about, you know, how quickly things can change. I think one of the things that stymies change or makes it a lot harder is um, it's not actually the people who are involved. I think it's things like standards and protocols. You know, it's it's so hard to change something like the basic collection system that you've set up or those sorts of things in terms of the legacy information that you've got there and the legacy collection. I think that's where some of those questions around neutrality and the choices and how we start to then tackle them also become part of these discussions because it's it is about staffing it's about outward facing things but then it's also about these um very deep embedded standards and protocols that have set the normalized uh course of business for museums which i you know that feels like a really challenging thing to tackle and no is what I was I would say to that um, I think you know it's an interesting thing because I found that working in museums is I've always been a person that cares about social justice and wants to you know apply that lens to all of my work and I found that there were moments when I realized I was part of advancing um, these systems of inequity right because they're built into they're built into museums. They're just built into the structure. So to work there in many ways 
one is actually just automatically doing it. And it's easy to do because that is how the structure is set. So um, I've been really thinking, you know, having to be more conscious. And I tell people it is our duty to break those structures. Right. So people will say, well, you know, it's it's too late to do X. You know, it's too late to add more artists of color to the show because it's already been set and it's, it's too complicated or they're not in the collection. You know, we don't we don't collect that. So we're just going to go with what we have. And what we have is something that's already been built on these structures of inequality. And so we perpetuate it because, yeah, we don't have enough time. There aren't enough staff. There's there's not enough resources. There's And, and many of these things are actually, they are true. Like when you work there, when you hear from the outside, you just go, oh, people are giving you an excuse. But when you work on the inside, you do realize, okay, yeah, there are a lot of pressures that we have. And yet I'd like to sit back and tell people, and I tell myself, but it is my duty to break these things, right? It's my, my duty to change the system because the system is set up to perpetuate itself. And so my job is to break those structures. And if that means, you know, we're going we're gonna to do things differently. Um, so it's where I try to see alternative solutions and I try to come up with other ideas and I bring them to a lot of people. And it's all about how we can kind of free ourselves out of this chain that's already been set up for us. So I think, you know, policies and these practices, these are also things that are shaped by humans. They're shaped by people. Um, the problem is that it, it becomes easy to do and because of lack of resources and stuff, we kind of keep doing them and often even if they're, they're wrong. But if we see it as our mission to change those things and really see our work in the institution as being creative and we are creative agents, I think we can really, you know, we can, we can make that change happen. We can make it happen in lots of little ways and we can encourage and we can um, invite other people to help us do that work too. Sometimes people who already work in these systems of inequality are some of the worst people <laughs> we're trying to um, get them to like change because they're so used to it. So it's good to kind of collaborate with people outside of our museum structure to help us develop ideas and um, ways that we can start dismantling these kind of systems that we have built up already. Yeah, I think it's not just that people are used to it, but they're, you know, they're invested in the current systems as well. That's what their training has taken them to or, or those sorts of things. I think one of the things you brought up earlier, Mike, was this idea that there are people who argue for museums remaining um, outwardly apolitical. But I, I, I suspect there are also people who would argue that museums not taking explicit positions is a way for them to act as agents of positive change, which is one of the aims of this campaign, for, for fear of exacerbating the polarization that we're currently seeing in political discourse and certainly here in the US and I gather in many places around the world. Does openly taking a stand on political or social issues have a is, is it possible that that threatens to undermine the public trust that we have in museums? Is, is there a way that actually this outward stance, this this outward acknowledgement of a lack of neutrality could undermine other aspects of the work that museums are doing? So I think it's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's actually been some research done recently that I thought was interesting around these ideas because this is there are all these fears out there of, you know, any sort of museum board probably could list all the reasons why they feel uncomfortable engaging in projects that might align with some of this work. Um, and I think um, 
so I think addressing those fears is really important. One of them is that um, that public trust would go away. And I think one of the main things to question ourselves when we ask about public trust is, what do we mean by public? Because I know that if we asked indigenous communities or communities of color out there and said, do you trust museums? <laughs> I don't think we're getting the 90% trust that we get from the sort of older older research that's been done on do, do does the public trust museums? So I don't right. think that trust is necessarily across the board. Um, and so I think what we're, so you could do a, you know, an exhibition that is, you know, really does just totally disregards you know communities of color and, and those experiences voices and perspectives in our country and I think you know generally the like you know in a city like Portland Oregon where I work generally broader public they may trust the museum through it but is that the right thing that museum should be doing and there's also been research that shows so I, so I think we have to question what the public is when we talk about mm-hmm. public trust and I don't think there's been enough research on that um, although there have been a couple of really good articles written in um, recent journals that point towards that but there's been some new research out on public trust and museums that are taking social justice approaches and that trust is still strong there's been in museums like the Missouri History Museum, um, the um, Eastern State Penitentiary, um, institutions that are really, you know, taking a stance on really important issues uh, in their communities and in society um, are maintaining that really strong trust with their visitors and with their communities. And they're growing those communities. More and more people that normally weren't visiting an institution because it was telling a certain version of history are now coming back because that's been, you know, just smashed. And now we're telling stories that have never been told in an official institution. Um, there's a recent exhibit um, on civil rights in St. Louis at the Missouri History Museum that some research was done on that just showed that you know visitors were really engaging in the content, especially stuff related to Ferguson um, and and you know things that revolved around that. So so I think it's been good to see museums taking a stance for issues that they're. I think where I get frustrated um, is when. Uh, an issue that is basically around recognizing basic human dignity for all people uh-huh. becomes politicized and becomes yeah. partisan. So as to say that if we're going to have an exhibit that stands up and, and centers the voices of disabled communities, if we're going to have an exhibition that centers the voices of social justice activism or Black Lives Matter activists, then that's political. Um, and I think it's, you know, these are people that are, you know, working out there on human rights and they are striving, you know, people that are striving for their voice to be heard and for their for their stories to be told as part of these like museum narratives and i think it's really important part of the work that museums have to do and i don't see it as i see it's political because everything, everything is political i think um but i don't see it as some divisive partisan uh position that museums are taking when they're doing this work um very much not that um so to sort of address that yeah, my husband and I were really talking recently about museum neutrality, and he mentioned the idea of soft advocacy, uh, whereas you might be taking a position and do, doing so consistently, but doing so quietly, finding ways to uh, help make progress, ways to actually um, work through an idea or, or Um, basically help with human rights or civic rights and the fight for these things, but doing so in a way that is not necessarily loud and in your face and and that that can be just as important doing quiet work behind the scenes. Is it enough for museums internally to be acknowledging uh, that their work is not neutral and considering the positions that they're taking and the positions that they are putting out into the space 
without being explicit about those stances or do they have to be actually explicit and transparent about these choices that they're making? I, I, you know, I, I guess it could go, it could go both ways. I mean, to me, I, I, I think museums need to, the people who work in museums need to let go of the idea of it being problematic. <laughs> um, and, and so I don't, I don't personally, I don't really see a reason to, um, distinguish so much between the soft and hard because actually I, f I find it to be problematic to have the, the thought about being quote in your face about um, <laughs> advocacy or something like that like me standing up for human rights or disability and um, you know Black Lives Matter is to me not being in your face about anything I mean I, I, I just think it's it's um, kind of not the right way to frame it the issue in the first place uh -huh. um, and I, I think a lot of the work that museums need to do is internal work. I actually find it very problematic when, you know, things are happening in our society and then people think that there should be a quick program that they should throw together or if they throw these uh, exhibition together and put these certain objects up on the wall, then we're done. You know, the museum has, quote, has said something, has has spoken about this issue when the actuality of how the structure of that museum is is has not actually been addressed you know the fact that people of color occupy like the lowest level jobs in the institution um, so they are mainly the facilities people and, and they are mainly the guards but they're not actually making any decisions about um, you know what goes on the wall what we collect and things like that so we're leaving all of that intact and instead we've just put together a show and the museum pats itself on the back and says hey you know we, we did something we're, we're done so you know, to me, it's not a conversation so much about being in your face or soft advocacy. I, I think it's it's all about museums getting real and um, doing some really hard work. And I and like I said, I don't actually think they're the best people to really necessarily um, organize that work for themselves. That they should be working with their people who are trained um, facilitators and issues of race and, and um, issues of disability. They should be hiring those folks to work with them in their institution and uh, help them kind of design and to, to just be able to un, uh, uproot to see where the problems are because they probably don't even know where they are for real um, to be able to identify them and then start to break them down. I think that should be an ongoing thing. It's not going to be something you can fix in a one-day workshop or a two-day or one month. I mean it should just be ongoing work of the institution. You know that's why there are these calls for um, the people have talked about like decolonize to decolonize the museum, what that work would involve, that is really deep structural kind of work. So I think we get out of the idea so much of this being um, a protest in terms of it being this um, temporary thing and it's it's just something about people walking around with signs and flashing them and it's, it's not really about that. It's actually about a mind shift. It's about changing the paradigm in which we work. Um, and I, I think it, in, you know, that's why I kind of push against those kind of terms of like soft advocacy or something because I, I just think it's, if we change how we are framing the entire situation, we could start to get somewhere versus this kind of, this attitude of um, this whole discussion about things being comfortable to people and things like that. It's just, it doesn't even matter. This, this whole talk about we want to make people comfortable. I don't care about making people comfortable. That's that's not that's not really the point. If you're actually caring about, you know, being a, 
institution that supports human rights. You're not out here trying to make people who are vested in oppression comfortable. I, I just, it's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, when we talk about this, though, there's also going to be a big question that comes up before Mike mentioned boards. We need to talk money if we're having this conversation because whether it's relying on public funding or private philanthropy, museums are often deeply invested in particular ideas about the objects in the collection, uh, about the collections themselves, and sometimes there is a fear that exploring the nuance or the complexities related to an object or its histories could affect its value, whether that's its trust value or its financial value. And similarly, museum exhibitions are often sponsored by corporations who have interests that might go against the museum mission and might very much go against these socially focused actions, this idea of the museum acting as an agent of social change. How should museum professionals who want to support this campaign address those kinds of fears? Mike, do you want to talk to that? Yeah, I think another, it's another one of those. So a lot of these fears, to me at least, are uh, just stuck in these false narratives that museum professionals keep telling themselves reasons why we can't do the work. Like I've all the time within within institutions, uh, within communities, within the field, there's a lot of people that put up these barriers to doing the work. And I think when we actually probe at them and talk about them in serious ways, we find out there's not a lot in, in behind them and supporting them. Um, there are plenty of institutions out there doing this work that have full board support. In fact, they've changed, sometimes they've changed their boards, which is desperately needed in so many institutions across this country. Um, and so there's been a lot of, you know, um, structural changes needed along that area. I think some institutions have looked at where their support is coming from and developed better um, guidelines for, you know, making decisions about fundraising and patrons and, you know, corporate sponsors for things. Um, and those are the museums that I think need to be leading us into the future. I think there are other museums that haven't been asking those hard questions. They still are, you know, if a science museum is receiving support from, you know, company from oil companies, you know, and then you know, we, we find some of those same institutions are afraid to do exhibitions on climate change, which is probably one of the single greatest, you know, issues of our generation. Mm -hmm. But science museums haven't jumped on to really tackle that issue. Some have, but some haven't. And they've been fearful of it um, because they're fearful of losing funding. But we need to we need to take a stand on this and actually address these issues. Um, and so I think more, you know, uh, there's been some exchange that even, um, Latanya, you've been responding to really well recently around, you know, does this, does this whole conversation apply to science museums? Yes, <laughs> definitely does. Um, it applies to all these institutions. And you can't get an easy way out of this by saying, well, we can't get funding for that because you need to do the work. You need to live that vision and stand up for that work and you will find people to support that work. There are plenty of people right now that don't support art museums, for example, because they because they see them as elitist museums only serving certain segments of society. And so they don't want to support those institutions. But if we can turn that around, and some museums have, we, we see a total different landscape for fundraising. There are major foundations in this country right now across, you pretty much name every major foundation 
and they are doing really significant investments in community development work, in supporting communities of color, in making changes to be more inclusive. Um, I mean, the Ford Foundation is one of the leading institutions that's supporting exhibitions that are focusing on, you know, disability communities. They're focusing on um, all kinds of institutions supporting good work in communities. So I don't see any indication of the funding uh, that should be driving institutions toward this direction of not engaging with this work. I think they should. Yeah. you know just be secure and, and confident and instead of i think that's where the soft advocacy for me gets problematic is that indicates that museums should sort of dabble in this work a little bit or just sort of be secretive about it or do it in like a small gallery in the basement um and that's when museums i think get into trouble is they're not committing to it it's not a core value they're sort of like well we'll try this or oh something happened we better respond to that and museums usually are really bad at sort of respond if they're not doing the work and then they respond to something at the very last minute because it's in the news or because they've been called out by local activists. Um, they're not really committed to it. So you see them sort of be severely challenged by this. Um, so, yeah, I think the funding conversation is, you know, not a barrier to this work. Thanks, Mike. Recently on uh, Twitter, or there, there was an article doing the rounds online that argued to fight racism within museums, they need to stop acting like they're neutral. Uh, I know you were both well acquainted with this piece, but it didn't acknowledge this campaign. So there was a lot of conversation on Twitter that followed um, when people were sharing this online, and I was one of those who shared it online, that described the frequent erasure of the work of people of colour and other excluded groups. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about how your own work has been rendered invisible and how that's impacted you as scholars and professionals. Latanya, I know this is something we actually spoke a little bit about on Twitter, and I know you were being brought into these conversations. Can you talk a little bit more about the erasure of the work of people of color? Uh, sure. Yeah, it's something that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing new. It happened it happened with our campaign, but it, it's happened over and over. And it's um, something where I saw it with the article and I thought, okay, I'm actually going to speak up a little bit because I've noticed that just in the, since we started this, it's been less than a year, um, the campaign had been improperly cited over and over. And um, and when it when it's usually not mentioned at all or if it's mentioned, they only mention one of us and um, sometimes I think that's because people just aren't maybe used to collaborative projects for some reason we're very much we like to think of one person as one person creates everything um, but also uh, sometimes people just know one or the you know the other they know Mike so they credit Mike or they know me so they credit me um, so it's sometimes it's just that but also there is just a trend in general to erase um, women of color and to just try to shut down your voice too so it's something yeah. I've been noticing. So I've been on Twitter and I'm very um, vocal about my experiences and I really ground things on my experiences or ones I've witnessed of colleagues when I talk about um, experiences of discrimination I've, I've had in museums and in the academy. And sometimes I've had people push back really in a forceful way um, to tell me, no, that's not what you're experiencing. <laughs> and, I, you know, it's, of course, it's like a ludicrous position for someone to take to tell me that's not what you experience. That these, are, these places are places of, you know, inclusion. And, you know, they throw a lot of these kind of words at me. And I'm going, yeah, I know institutions use those words. And I've worked at several museums. So thanks for that. Um, and also, at the same time, I've experienced discrimination 
in multiple forms at in museums. I've experienced sexism. I've experienced classism. I've experienced ableism, ageism, um, in addition to racism. So I, I pretty much have a very um, fluid knowledge of how how those things operate within yeah. the museum structure. And what I do know is that many, and I'm not the only person, of course, many people have had these experiences. Not many people really will talk about them in a public platform and write about them in a public space and in, in a public platform such as, you know, this Twitter, um, social media kind of thing. And that's because people are, you know, they're fearful. Um, they feel that, you know, for, for future employment, they're, they're trying to protect themselves. And I understand that, but I actually started to realize for myself in the last two, three years that we're really not going to be changing these systems until we get more people to um, come out and talk about their experiences and to publish those experiences. And um, when we do publish them, I'm hoping that when people reference those things and see that, that they will actually cite um, who they got this information from. And for me, it, it, is, it is all about actually doing that work of um, dismantling those systems. Because for me, it's made me analyze, like to experience um, what I've had, what I've, you know, what I've gone through in the institutions. I've been thinking I'm using all this material to analyze it, to see how, how it works, how it affects someone, and then how can we start dismantling it. And I think that work has to happen collectively. And that's why I actually write about it and talk about it in public space. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, that pushback that I've encountered or people trying to erase my experiences while I'm actually doing that work, I guess it's to be expected. Um, because that's, that's, that's part of just the whole system. So erasure is part of it, right? So when you do have um, people of color, women, um, and disabled folks who are in these spaces, the few of us that make it into these um, institutions, there's a whole system that's set up to try to erase you the whole time while you're in it as well, to, to render you invisible. Um, so for me, it's really important to you know, see how that works to talk about it, to call people out on that erasure, and um, to make it known, and to just kind of, I'm also doing this work because I try to connect with museum studies um, instructors and students mm -hmm. to kind of, I think that's where we need to go, because some of these people who have already been in the system for so long, I don't think they're really going to be changing too much. I mean, you know, I, I put some hope into them, but not too much. I, I really see uh, um, the energy going towards people who are um, going into the field and working with them and helping them because it's also you want to encourage a wider uh, group of people to be in to be professionals in the field. So part of that is to give them some of the tools for them to see what that experience is going to be like and to try to help them along so they can not have to deal with as much um, you know really bad stuff as I've had to deal with <laughs> and to make their experience better and also working with more people just who don't work in the museum to kind of connect with them and to encourage them to see these spaces as theirs too and that they can be shaping these institutions. So yeah, I use, I use that erasure as something to study and to try to figure out how to change that in a way to um, connect with more people. So it's, it's something to be expected, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Earlier, at the start of this conversation, one of the comments was, uh, I think, Mike, you made the comment that museums are not neutral. 
should be more than or is more than just a t-shirt but you would like to see other t-shirts that museums are blank this is a question for both of you if all museum professionals agreed that museums were not neutral what do you think would change and if we take this movement to its natural progression to its next step and the one after that and the one after that what would you like to see the sector look like as a result of this campaign well i think um a lot a lot of things <laughs> that can can come from that i think this work is you know i think one of the things to recognize about for me at least is from my own personal perspective that i recognize about this work is i think it's just ongoing mm-hmm. um and i um i have to say that like in our own institution in small sort of hallway conversations we do reflect back on um something that Helen Molesworth wrote um, at one point that was that was spread around a lot when she was uh, canned from her institution, um, where she sort, sort of questioned whether the functions of museums was unredeemable. Um, and so, and especially in working with indigenous communities, um, I've worked with a lot of native artists who would say, you know, <laughs> one of them said, well, <laughs> we were around for thousands of years before museums and we'll mm. be around for thousands of years after museums are long gone. Um, mm. And so there is that question of, are is it, are we, are we sort of fixing museums to get them to a certain phase or is there actually a better thing that could exist? Mm. Um, I think um, whether it's museums or whether it's not, I think that, um, you know, I think spaces that really embrace and advance the role for, you know, so I've worked in art museums my entire career. So I've been really interested in how can we create spaces where we're advancing the role of arts and culture in creating social change and being uh, community owned spaces so that there isn't just a small group of staff that, you know, are sort of not necessarily as much connected to the community of a, of a place, um, but are sort of the experts and they're sort of dictating, um, you know, the, the knowledge, the stories, the objects that are, that should be important um, to a community, but instead really flipping that and putting, and, and several institutions um, have done that where they've sort of put community at the core and at the center. Um, and it requires museums thinking a lot about, you know, how do we define community? Um, how do we value those voices, perspectives, mm-hmm. knowledges, and experiences? Um, I think there's been some really interesting work out there um, that are getting museums closer to that. But I think, you know, just recognizing indigenous land as a permanent practice in institutions um, would be a great thing to see actually being civically engaged. So museums should be places like libraries where you can go and get registered to vote. Every museum, you should be able to go and get registered to vote. That is not partisan. (laughs) That is just part of our democracy. We should be places that support our democracy. Um, We should promote people's participation in human rights organizations, community-based organizations, and social justice organizations. And we should be proud of that because it all of those groups better our communities. Um, and I think we are still you know, behind in terms of organizations doing that. Um, and then, you know, I think because of, especially I've been talking with a lot of uh, colleagues around the globe that aren't based in the U.S. Um, and they're so interested with, you know, how institutions here are responding to these legacies of colonialism, these legacies of slavery that are very much with us. Um, and so I think if we acknowledge those and start to work, you know, get to dismantle those legacies and we center 
voices, perspectives, experiences that haven't been centered and don't <laughs> always center, you know, white artists or those stories. Um, I think there could be a radical shift there for, you know, museums to start thinking in that way. It doesn't always have to be balanced, fair and, uh, and equal. Um, we can actually swing the pendulum a little bit the other direction and I don't think anyone will get hurt by it. So, um, so I think, you know, just building a lot of that change. But again, I think the the real question to ask is, is it museums that we see ourselves, you know, a hundred years from now in the future, all gathering around, or do we actually recreate these institutions into something a little different? Yeah, it's a really good question. Latanya, what about you? What, where do you see this in its ultimate, uh, actualization? Um, yeah, I love a lot of like basically everything that Mike said and, um, you know, I always use the analogy of museums should be like, um, these porous kind of spaces. They should be like Swiss cheese. So there should be these holes in them that, Mm. um, there's always these arms going in and out. We have to get out of out of the idea of inside the museum and outside the museum, this in out Mm. paradigm, I think is really problematic. Um, and really in the big picture of things. I'm really wanting to spend more time thinking um, more deeply about creating other types of centers. Um, you know, again, hearkening back to what Mike was saying about the, that uh, article, that last part of the article where Molesworth had said that she's not sure if the museum itself, that construct, is, a, is it really redeemable. Um, it is one that is heavily loaded and um, very problematic because it, it does become out of a, come out of a legacy of colonialism, right? Um, I'm not sure either. I do believe in art. I believe in culture. I believe in um, you know public memory, and I'm, I think there. I'm interested in creating centers that uh, give give those kind of um, things practices room and for forum like spaces. I'm not sure they need to be called a museum and to be entrenched in a lot of the, the historical baggage that comes along with, with a museum. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, in thinking with people who wanna, who wanna do that work and thinking of other types of institutions as well. And you know, at the same time, I'm extremely excited about the arts and I, I believe in them wholeheartedly. The structure of museums, I'm not sure if they're redeemable either. I mean, I think the the process of work we need to do of really decolonizing those institutions, right? We we won't know if the museum is redeemable. We have to actually go through those those steps, right, to try to figure out what that's and what that would involve, and to actually do it. Um, and then we could we can see we can see where it can go. I do think that there are some really uh, wonderful minds out there, and if we connected and really work collaboratively with a lot of people, you know, getting outside of the whole "you've got to have a PhD to work here" kind of thing, um, if if we really connect it with people in deep, broad kind of ways, I think we could we can make something really exciting. And so, I believe very deeply in culture, and I'm interested in more collaborations. Yeah, Mike Latanya. This has been so interesting and so informative and I'm so impressed with the work you're doing and the conversations that you have started and that I am sure going to continue to shape our sector for many years to come. 
If people want to get in contact with you, if they want to find out more about the campaign, if they want to purchase one of the museums and not neutral shirts, which I know uh, profits go to support groups like the Southern Poverty Law Centre and the World Central Kitchen in Puerto Rico, where can they do it? How can they find you? How can they get in contact and follow along and connect with this conversation? I think one of the easiest ways is probably just to follow the hashtag museums are not neutral. It's been a really great um, conversation and dialogue and people are posting to it um, all, you know, every day, all the time. And I think we're constantly posting links to the t-shirts. I think Latanya might, you know, in her Twitter feed has them. I've got one pinned on my Twitter feed. Um, so just check us out. Um, there is through Bonfire. So if you Google like museums are not neutral, um, Bonfire, it's a great site that allows us to do this. And then the, the funds go to charity. Um, we've raised something like almost $11,000 for charity organizations. Um, and the uh, t-shirt funds right now go to support um, the Flint Child Health and uh, Development Fund, which is helping with the effects, the long-term effects that will come out of the Flint water crisis, um, which just isn't going to isn't over just because there's you know pipes that are being replaced and things like that. So, um, so we really appreciate everyone that's continuing to chime in and and sort of support those organizations with this. Um, yeah, and I would say uh, get involved in the actual hashtag. You know, start tweeting um, and and on Instagram and start sharing. Um, your perspectives on these issues. Yep. That is fantastic. Mike, Latanya, thank you so much. I will put links to uh, all of the museums are not neutral links in the show notes as well. And we'll put each of your Twitter handles there so that people can find you. In the meantime, thanks so much. It's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Sue. It's been great. Kaywin Feldman is the Niven and Duncan Macmillan Director and President of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, or MIA, since 2008. She also serves on the boards of National Art Strategies, the Chipstone Foundation, and is a member of the Bizo Group. She is past president of the Association of Art Museum Directors and a past chair of the American Alliance of Museums, or AAM. You can find Kaywin on Twitter at Kaywin Feldman, and I will include a link to that in the show notes. Kaywin, thank you so much for joining us here on Museopunks. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's so wonderful to speak to you. Now, you recently wrote a really influential piece for Apollo magazine titled Museum Leadership in a Time of Crisis, in which you argue that this is the most challenging time to be an arts leader that you've experienced in 25 years as a museum director. Why is this moment so different or so much more critical than previous moments? You know, I think from um, having been a director for so long, I'm, I usually have a, a wealth of experience to draw from when there's a crisis or, um, you know, staff members have a need or um, I need to respond to something. And I've just never been through a time like this. And I've had several moments where our staff has gathered together to talk about how upset they are over something that's happened um, locally or nationally. And I have to actually look at them and say, I don't have an answer to this, you know, that um, that I'm, I'm just as vulnerable and sort of going through this. And, and, you know, of course, I have to, as, as always, as a leader, put aside my own personal 
partisan politics um, because that's not what this is about. But as I kind of referenced in the article, where I do draw the line is that I feel frequently that the um, key values that we all um, stand for in our institution, I think most museums are really um, under attack. And yeah. and I, I do feel that it is um, not just appropriate, but necessary for us to stand up for what we believe in. Yeah, I think one of the things that I was quite interested in in the article is you talk about the fact that museums are political by their nature, but also argue that they shouldn't be partisan. And I often <laughs> see that there is this um, – Uh, those two ideas are often linked, especially when we talk about these ideas of museum neutrality. There's often this sort of confusion between saying museums are political versus museums should be partisan. How does a museum take a principled stance or take a position without being partisan? What are those sort of central values that you're talking to? Yeah, so I I always try to um, sort of talk to our our staff about – the uh, a concept that this really influential woman in our community named Shonda Baker um, taught me, which is that we can be activists in our private lives, yeah. and in our museum work life or you know work life anywhere, we should be change makers. And so um, we try to think about what does it mean to be a change maker, and. And that very much comes out of our mission and our collection. And and I've, I've said to our team that um, the good news is all art is an expression of the human lived experience. And so mm. that includes identity, sexuality, politics, religion, love, death, hate, hope. You know, all of those things are part of um, – the expression of artists. And so we have a really rich base here in our our collection. We have 5,000 years of human history um, from across the globe um, in our collection. And so it offers um, a really rich spectrum of works to draw from and um, to be able to communicate some of those values and, um, and to, you know, to tackle difficult issues. Yeah, it's interesting as you say that. I mean, I think one of the things that we're then talking about is how we use and utilize our collections, but also use our spaces and use the energy that we have. So in terms of that, I I notice you often talk about uh, at Mia being um, about the museum serving community, community needs. And I think that's a really important thing to break down a little bit. I'm interested in how you define community and if your definition of community has changed since you came to Mia and also how you think about defining those needs and how art can best serve those needs. You asked me lots of big questions. Um, (laughs) Sorry, yes, (laughs) that tends to be what I do here. (laughs) So, of course, the community term is a tough one and it's a fraught one and I know that it's often used as sort of code for something else. And so um, we do use the term a lot and it it changes according to whatever kind of group we're talking about and so in its broadest sense I do think about our constituents and um, here in the Twin Cities you know to our great disappointment we're um, you know what's known as flyover territory that we're between the coasts and so um, we we actually don't get a lot of tourists 
here at our museum. And so um, the bulk of our annual attendance comes from um, people from the Twin Cities. And so yeah. in its broadest sense, for us, community is very much the um, the people who live in the Twin Cities. And, um, and we often talk about, you know, serving those needs. Our current strategic plan actually um, has three primary areas of focus. And one of them is actually focusing on our neighborhood. And, um, and we came to that because, um, you know, one of the great assets um, of our museum is that um, we're not actually located in the center of an urban downtown. We're just outside of downtown. And we're completely tucked away in a neighborhood. And it's a very, very diverse, dynamic neighborhood. And um, when I first got here, I thought that it was a liability because we weren't on a main street, you know, with people driving past every day where we could put banners out about our current exhibitions. We're very tucked away. And of course, I came to realize that it's not a liability. It's an incredible asset because we have people living all around us. And... um, and of course, when you take away the challenges and hassles of transportation, it means that um, we can actually welcome our neighbors into the museum. And um, we hadn't been doing that very much because we have free admission here at MIA. And so we'd always sort of thought everyone's welcome, so let them come. And um, our strategic plan is then uh, has a big focus on actually what are we doing for the people who live around us? And how might we partner with other agencies in our neighborhood that are also serving our neighbors really well and, um, you know, make our resources for both of us go farther in reaching more people more profoundly by working together. So it's a long answer to your question, but trying to make that point that um, we do use community a lot um, as a big word, but we do then often break it down as to what we mean specifically. But I think one of the other you know, sort of last key things I would stress is that um, we don't ever assume to know what a community wants or needs. You know, we very much feel that um, it's our job to get out there and listen to people and hear from our community and that that's the important part of the process. Yeah, I'd say you've even been doing that within the museum sector as well. One of the things that I really wanted to speak to you about today is the um, museum, a site for social action or mm-hmm. mass action um, gatherings that you've been hosting with stakeholders from within the sector, which are a, a series of public dialogues essentially about um, how we can create actionable practices for greater equity and inclusion within the sector. Where did this initiative come from? And, and it, it sounds like it continues this um, sort of continuity or the continuum of listening to your communities and one of which being the professional community. Is that right? Absolutely. And, um, uh, and you know, really it all came about from some of the really terrific leaders I have here on our team um, and particularly Elizabeth Callahan, who I'm really delighted to say I've worked with in a couple of museums now and um, she's amazing. And, and she, um, it was really Elizabeth's vision to do, to do this, to start mass action and also very much Elizabeth's point of view that it needed to be sector wide and not some, mm-hmm. not a me initiative. We might, you know, we raised the money and got the, 
program together, but it really does belong to a large group of museum practitioners who do work that inspire us all. And so we merely wanted to have the opportunity to bring them together. And, and I have to say for me personally, so it really is the baby of Elizabeth and a few other staff members here, but um, my sort of um, realization of the importance of mass action came after um, Philando Castile um, was fatally shot here um, in, in Falcon Heights, just outside of St. Paul by um, a police officer two years ago. And, um, and of course, our city was just, or the two cities were torn apart and our, um, you know, staff was just in such pain and yeah. we came together and, and we wanted to do something, but we did know what to do. And, you know, one thing I'm, we really knew that whatever we did, we had to be authentic. And I think that's so important. Um, and we didn't want to just do something that was superficial or surface. And, you know, in the end, we actually didn't do anything at the time. We came together and had conversations internally, but we didn't do anything uh, publicly. And that's when I really understood what Elizabeth was talking about with the need for mass action and the need to have this whole um, practice and toolkit so that we could be responsive when our community, you know, really needed us. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you talking about the difficulty of having these kinds of conversations. I remember um, being in Baltimore uh, and working at the BMA at the time that the Freddie Gray mm. um, death and uprising happened as well. And how, as you say, there was this, this feeling that we didn't know know how to deal with institutionally, also personally. And, and, you know, for me, I was a fairly a newcomer in the Baltimore community and, in fact, in the US and not having um, mechanisms, not having ways for either holding those conversations internally or, in fact, for then thinking about what that means publicly, it was definitely really challenging personally. And it, it does make me wonder, you, you said at, at the start of this conversation that you've been having these conversations with your staff over the last several years where they're feeling quite vulnerable and you're feeling quite vulnerable as a leader. Have the conversations you've been having um, with mass action, with the sector and with the community started to give you better mechanisms for having these conversations internally? Absolutely. I mean, we do now have a sort of... Um we have more regular conversations and um, conversations about um, social action, about diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, um, about what it means to be a responsive museum in America today. Yeah. And um, we have more, you know, formal and informal discussions. Um, and uh, I think that the we have really, you know, healthy conversations on staff. And then um, we're also then thinking about how that translates into our work in the galleries and um, the, you know, sort of shifting our exhibition program even. Uh, so, uh, and our, our mass action toolkit is very well thumbed here, I have to say. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. You've just opened an exhibition called Art of Healing, which includes artwork um, made by artists in your community around uh, the shooting of Philando Castile. Is that correct? 
It is. Yes, we just opened it um, a week ago. Okay. There must be a lot of stakeholders in an exhibition like that. How do you weigh up the risks to the community and and all of the different needs that the communities, in fact, communities plural, are having when you open an exhibition like that? Yeah, as I've um, said to several people, it's one of the hardest projects we've ever done. And it's actually a small exhibition um, mm-hmm. because you don't actually need a lot of material to um, enable people to have the experience and the discussion um, in this area. And um, it was hard because we have so many stakeholders and really wanted to make sure that we were doing it right. And for example, we had lots of conversations internally about, you know, should we put this in a context? Should we include the historical Mm. works in our collection? Because of course, artists have been expressing protest, pain, frustration, um, uh, the need to memorialize um, since people started making art. And so we thought a lot about you know, including other works or including works that have been made across the nation um, in the Black Lives Matter movement. And, um, and you know, after considering all these different uh, ways to present the show, we really decided that it needed to be local, that this was a yeah. local pain and um, that we wanted to show the way that the community had come together. And I think it was a really healthy process that we went through. Um, and of course, the project was really, you know, initiated by the Castile family when Philando's mother, Valerie, contacted us. And and in the most generous and um, heartfelt way, she noted that artists from across the um, state had been sending her artwork hmm. to give her comfort, you know, to help her heal and um, to memorialize her son's life. And uh, and she wanted to return the generosity. She wanted to share the works with other people. And we were, you know, so struck by Valerie's um, drive, her warmth and kindness. Yeah. And um, and so we put together a community advisory committee that, you know, also helped. And, um, and, and, and in fact, w- when we talked about decisions like, should we include works of art from other parts of the collection, it was our community advisory committee that also advised us not to do that. So we, you know, really listened to them, both in terms of the exhibition as well as, of course, all of the programming we were doing. We we're doing with the show, and um, uh, so uh, it, it's been a very collaborative process, and um, and you know, also a really difficult one for our board of trustees. Yeah, and I have to say, our board. Um, you know, Minnesota is very liberal. Um, our board uh, supports this museum because they believe in accessibility and our free admission and our our mission um, to enrich the community. So they're passionate about that, but um, but sort of struggled of was this too political? Were we taking a stand? And um, you know, I tried to say that. It, Yes, we are taking a stand because, um, it, you know, this is actually an issue that we need to address. And, you know, through this process, um, one of the things I, I finally realized is that I think for a lot of our trustees, they actually just couldn't understand the show. And um, our board is um, 75% white. Yes. And... Um, and they just didn't quite understand it. And, 
you know, ultimately the show I think is about a um, traditionally white power institution of the community acknowledging black trauma and saying, we hear you, we acknowledge it, and um, we want to be a part of your healing process. And, um, and I think, you know, it's been very important. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We seem to be talking about a couple of types of risk here, one being, you know, the perceived risk to the institution of, of um, doing something that's outside the bounds of what it normally does and what has been usual to date. And then talking about also the risks to the communities and to the vulnerable communities within. And so that need to have things like the community advisory board who can actually really give you that insight as to what is and isn't appropriate and, and trying to work in this interesting space of thinking about um, perceived risk to the institution versus perceived risk to the communities that you're serving and mm-hmm. how you sort of mitigate these these different needs and these these different desires. Um, one of the things I think that is also interesting at, at Mir, you have just received funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to establish a center for empathy and the visual arts. Mm-hmm. How does empathy play into these discussions what why why a center for empathy in the visual arts what are you hoping to achieve with this yeah. so um I, actually i would start to say that in the western world our concept of empathy um was really formulated in the end of the 19th century and so of course humans have always been empathic it's not that the emotion was new but um the word wasn't coined until 1870 and and it came out of the visual arts and this idea that you could um feel into something inanimate that somebody else had created and actually have a sense of that person and so i found it really interesting that it came out of the visual arts and um and and it actually has been proven by um, social scientists that that empathy is decreasing in in America right now. They've been able to mm. chart it over the last twenty years, and it's it's in decline. And um, they've also shown that empathy is actually genetic, but it can also be taught, so mm. or learned, I should say. Mm-hmm. So um, we wanted to think about how we might use this global collection that we have um, to help people gain a better understanding of both people around the world and people who live, you know, in the neighborhood and and around us all. And um, just think about how works of art can help us have greater empathy for people, perhaps people who lived a long time ago and, um, you know, people that we're close to right now. And so um, we decided that the collection was a great asset to be able to do that yeah. and um, reached out to a man named um, Dacker Keltner at the um, at Berkeley, um, who's part of the Greater Good Science Center, and um, and Docker's done a lot of work about awe and wonder, and one of the things that he's shown, as well as actually other social scientists, is that when um, people experience um, wonder, that they 
uh, become less narcissistic. They're less focused on their, you know, daily lives, their cell phone. They actually, um, they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. They're, you know, connected to humanity. And he's been able to, to show that and um, prove that through scientific research. Hmm. And so he's actually our partner in this project because we want to look at how might we um, foster, use our collections to foster greater empathy among um, children, teens, and adults. We want to look at both um, formal learning programs, so when we do tours and um, produce materials, uh, as well as informal of just, you know, an average adult visitor wandering through our galleries and how we present material. And um, so we're just sort of starting this uh, journey now. And um, and uh, we've all been struck by um, the overwhelming response we've had. We've had been um, contacted by dancers and musicians and artists and museum um, uh, workers from across the globe who either are already thinking about this work or um, want to be a part of it. So uh-huh. we're um, it's kind of like the mass action model, really excited about being able to be a convener to bring together a lot of these um, thinkers and um, think about um, how we can actually do a better job of fostering empathy. Yeah, it's really lovely when you when you talk about sort of that broad impact. It seems that, that you're Mia is focused both on the hyperlocal but also so broadly on the global and the things that you can take from what you're doing at the institution and really share very generously with the sector but also with other sectors. I have to say one of the hard parts actually is um, trying to develop um, a new fundraising model for this and I'm sure many of my Mm. colleagues um, share this feeling you know if we want to do the biggest um, Monet exhibition that's ever been mounted I have lots of donors to go to but um, trying to fund um, whether it's you know mass action or another program um, I don't have a donor base that is accustomed to seeing this role of museums and really thinking about how we can be a more integral part of um, society and and public discourse. And I'm happy to say that, you know, generous people did step forward and we are able to do the work, but it's really been a new new model to um, bring um, donors along and, and, and see this new avenue of philanthropy. Yeah, that's super interesting. The funding question is always one that comes up, I think, whenever we're talking about change within the sector, when we're talking about doing different kinds of work, because different kinds of work often take different kinds of money. But it's interesting to think about these sorts of problems within that context as well. Um, Kaywin, at some point, you are going to be ready to move on from Mia. No, <laughs> right? It, can't happen. It, it, no. it will happen at some point. <laughs> Do you then think about how um, the work that you're doing now, basically how that's embedded not just into the institutional strategy but really into the institutional DNA so that these approaches to the way that your work outlasts you? I think one of the challenges we often see is people associate individual leaders with particular types of work within museums. And it's interesting to think about how you build sustainability planning for this kind of approach and this kind of change. I'd love to hear more about how you're thinking about that. Well, of course, I do think that by um, 
building a sustainable model, so a donor base, um, is is absolutely one way. Um, a lot of the you know mass action and internal work I think that we've done has helped um, our staff develop a vision for what kind of institution we can be. And so um, I think that really the majority of the staff does share the. Um, um, interest and and values certainly that I and our leadership team have in yeah. the kind of museum we want to be and so I do think that it's it's institution wide um, but I also think that um, when somebody else does come in here that America has changed and yeah. um, this this is the America that's that's here to stay and so perhaps there might be somebody else who doesn't um, agree with it in the moment but um, I, I do think this is the the future for museums. And I've um, said frequently that, um, you know, we put our heads in the sand to our own peril, that yeah. this work is messy and it's difficult. And, um, but it's, it's, you know, important and it is about the sustainability for the future. Yeah. If, you know, if someone who's thinking about one day being a museum director doesn't want to take on this kind of change, maybe it's not the right career for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Wen, thank you so, so much for giving us this really insightful perspective. If people do want to talk to you about this further, if they'd like to follow up with the work that's happening at Mia, is Twitter the best way to contact you? What's the best way for them to follow yeah, up? Um, uh, at Kaywin Feldman is a great way to reach out and contact me. That's great. Yeah. Kaywin, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it and appreciate all the work that you're doing in really um, helping the field to um, think more broadly and think differently. So thank you, Suze. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Latanya, Mike, and Kaywin for joining me on Museo Punks this month. Just as museums are not neutral, podcasts are not neutral either. And it's been wonderful to have the opportunity to share this important conversation with you. I look forward to bringing you more conversations about progressive practice in museums in all its forms soon. Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. You can connect with me on Twitter at MuseoPunks or check out the extended show notes at museopunks.org. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher. Just one quick note before I sign off. During the last couple of weeks, I have been painting the insides of my kitchen cabinets. This seems like a pretty ridiculous thing to talk about on the podcast, but it turns out that doing low cost, low scale renovations has become an incredibly vital method of relaxation for me. Who knew? I mention this to remind you, wherever you are, to find something small and personal that relaxes you and helps center you. Self-care continues to be so important. So spend a little bit of time doing something just for yourself one day this week. Cheers. Oh, my God.